looking through all of the readings this Sunday and just kind of praying with them throughout the week, there were two words that kind of jumped out at me and really stayed at the forefront throughout. The first one is the very last word that we heard in the first reading from the book of Exodus. And that's that word, compassionate. And to to hear that on the lips of God himself, after talking about not oppressing, molesting the aliens, right? And recognizing the fact that, look, you were weak once too, Israelites, and I took care of you. Now don't turn it around and become like the Egyptians yourself. Why? Because I am compassionate. And that doesn't just mean nice and, you know, I'm right. It's compassion means to suffer with. And I'll tell you, in thinking about that, just sort of like another biblical episode that that calls to mind, is when our Lord meets Saul on the road to Damascus, right? And what does he say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know, like later on, we're going to hear, I think it's in four weeks, you know, whatever you did for one of the least of my brothers, you did it for me. Our Lord is so in the midst of all of this with us that he says that he is compassionate, that he suffers with us, that he said, you know, back in Genesis, we hear this and it's so much better than I think we even understand, that it's not good for man to be alone. Well, part of that not being alone is he is compassionate. He's with us, not just in the good times, but even in our sufferings, because he wants to suffer with us. Now, the second word, and I'm glad you're sitting down, because it's so amazing, it's just going to knock you over. The word is you. Are you ready for that? I know. Aren't you glad? It's crazy. So, when you look at the gospel for today, right, and you hear our Lord say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Now, Let's look at the context of that. Jesus is still in the temple courtyard. We talked about this last week. And he's still getting tested and challenged by those that in just a couple chapters later in Matthew's gospel are going to be putting him to death, right? Like Palm Sunday has already happened at this point. He's already cleansed the temple. He's in there. They're challenging him all over the place. Remember last week we had the Pharisees challenging him with, you know, is it right to pay the temple tax or to pay the tax to Caesar or not? And our Lord just goes right through that, right? And then as we hear at the beginning of the gospel today, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. So we missed about, I think, 10 verses in between from last Sunday to this, where the Sadducees come and like with a smirk on their face are testing him about the resurrection. They don't believe in it. And as I learned from Mrs. Kramer, my sixth grade teacher, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, which is sad you see. So it's just a nice, you know, easy way to remember who they are, you know? And they put forward this ridiculous thing about a lady married to seven brothers, no children, so then who will she be with in heaven? You know, it's like this whole sort of thing of, well, if it's not going to work here, it can't work there. And our Lord, of course, silences them. Because it's so much better than, like, heaven isn't just a continuation of time and space like it is right here. It's being in the infinite love of the living God, who is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's the God of the living, not the dead. It's like, you're greatly mistaken. He silences them. So then, you get the Pharisees again, and this time the scholar of the law. Now, 
This one's a lot more legit of a question than is it right to pay the tax to Caesar or what about the resurrection? With this one, I mean, it sounds great. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? But I will say Matthew is kind of like tipping his hand here because when it says that the scholar of the law tested him, that word in Greek is used six times in the gospel and four, if I'm not mistaken, explain the way that the devil tests Jesus in the desert. This guy is not really interested in like, I really want to know what's the greatest commandment. He's testing him. He's putting him on guard, right? He wants to attack Jesus. They all want to bring him down. They want to destroy his credibility. And this is why the you is so impressive to me. Jesus doesn't respond as though this is an academic debate. If he did, he'd say the thing he kind of says last year first. The greatest and first commandment is this. No. He says, you shall love the Lord your God. And why is that you so important? Okay. In English, it's tough. In Spanish, it's going to be a lot easier at 1230 Mass. You is very clear in Spanish because the first per, or I'm sorry, the second person singular in Spanish and the second person plural are different. Usted and ustedes, or two and ustedes. In English, we use the same word. You means you, Steve Typher. It means you, the people of Sacred Heart, right? And unfortunately, we do have a second person plural, but it's never like used in translation. That would be, y'all shall love the Lord your God, right? They just don't do that. I don't know why, you know? I mean, it'd be kind of great, but he's not saying y'all shall love the Lord your God. No, Jesus, to this scholar of the law, standing in the temple, the guy's putting him to the test, and it's like he's trying for this debate to get at him. Our Lord, wisdom incarnate, looks at him and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. It's you singular, you the individual. He's looking at the guy and telling him, you shall love the Lord your God. You're not made to put me to the test. You are made to love you individually. And the beautiful thing for us, like I said, I think with compassion, that God suffers with us, and that he looks at this guy individually. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Jesus isn't getting into some abstract debate about laws. He is saying to this individual, you are made for love. Love of the eternal one who loved you into creation, loves you into existence even at this very moment. You shall love the Lord your God. And he's there suffering with him, right? I mean, think about the fact of the context. God doesn't have to be there. I mean, he's not getting into this to just win a bunch of debates, right? I mean, it makes no sense. It's like, you know, Michael Jordan showing up with our fourth grade girls' JV basketball team. He knows he's going to win, right? He doesn't really have to go into it. But why does he do this? So he can look at the man individually and say, you shall love the Lord your God. He enters into all of this to win us over, to woo us, even when, you know, we come into it maybe without the best motives. It's not as though everything has to already be perfect. He enters in to suffer with us and to win us over into his love. Now, how do we experience that in our day-to-day life? I want to go to the catechism for this from a beautiful section on contemplative prayer. 
This section begins in paragraph uh, 2709, so 2709. And I really want to read the whole paragraph of 2715, but it's 10 paragraphs totally worth, worth reading. And when I say contemplative prayer, I know it's easy to think, oh, that's nice for the monks and the sisters. But in all honesty, it's for all of us. Our Lord wants all of us in contemplative prayer. And this is why I can say this. Listen to the beginning of paragraph 2709. What is contemplative prayer? St. Teresa answers, contemplative prayer, in my opinion, is nothing else than a close sharing between friends. It means taking time frequently to be alone with him who we know loves us. And then this is 2715. Contemplation is a gaze of faith fixed on Jesus. I look at him and he looks at me. This is what a certain peasant of ours in the time of his holy priest, St. John Vianney, used to say while praying before the tabernacle. This focus on Jesus is a renunciation of self. His gaze purifies our hearts. The light of the countenance of Jesus illumines the eyes of our hearts and teaches us to see everything in the light of his truth and his compassion for all men. Contemplation also turns its gaze on the mysteries of the life of Christ. Thus, it learns the interior knowledge of our Lord, the more to love him and to follow him. So, here's the thing when it comes to contemplation. I think that a lot of the source of our anxiety in the world today, right? As I said, in Genesis we hear it's not good for man to be alone. And how often are we living our lives thinking that ultimately we are alone? When, in fact, God is compassionate. He suffers with us. He's in our midst. He wants us to take the time frequently to recognize that, to just be with him. Five, 10, 15, 30 minutes. It doesn't matter, but just to step aside and to let him look at us and say, you love the Lord your God with all your hearts. But here's the challenge, right? And I'm speaking as someone who has a difficult time with this. Like all of a sudden, you know, like I may have a bunch of appointments and I got like 10 minutes. What I could do is pause for a second, look at the crucifix in my office and just talk to him and say, okay, this is what's been going on so far. Here have been the good things today. Here have been the tough things today. Where are you in this? How do you want me? to love my neighbor as myself going forward and to just stop and listen to say that. And that would be an amazing, you know, seven to 10 minutes well spent. But what do I do instead? I pull out my phone and I open up YouTube and I watch Lionel Messi make amazing shots from the last 20 years, right? Why do I do that? Lionel Messi is not gonna pull me out of whatever's going on. Lionel Messi is not here to suffer with me. Now, he may be an amazing soccer player, but he's not God. And I would hope he would admit that too. I think he would, seems like a great guy. But nevertheless, it's like all these different things and we can all do it so easily where we go to something else and we think, well, I'll wait until the time is perfect. When you look at this gospel, like it's our Lord saying, no, you don't have to wait till time is perfect. You don't have to wait till the motives are completely pure. He wants to be there with you, to look at you and to say to you individually, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He's not just speaking in the abstract. And so this is a nice thing. He wants to be in this with you 
all of the time to remind you that you are not alone. It's not good for man to be alone. And how does he settle that? He's in our midst all the time. And so what we've got to do is to stop and recognize he is compassionate. He's in the midst of all of this with us. He doesn't wait until everything is perfectly silent, right? I mean, I love Sunday Mass so much. And we've already heard like three cries in the midst of this one homily. Thanks be to God, I haven't lost my train of thought, you know? I'm glad that they're here. And I know he is too. And that's where it's say, just do it with the kids. Bring them in too. Like, hey guys, let's just be quiet for two minutes and let's thank Jesus from our hearts for what's going on. Exactly. That's how it works, you know? And some of us may not be happy and it may feel dry sometimes all this, but what's the deal? He wants us to know he's there with us. He is compassionate. It's not until every tear is gone. He wants to be here right now to look at you and to say, you shall love the Lord your God. Because God is here with you. The important thing in the midst of this contemplative prayer is that we take the time to recognize that he is with us and to make sure that we in turn are with him. Praise be Jesus Christ.